Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 429 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. So excited to have Derwin Gray back, and we have a really important conversation. We talk about uh, pushback against racial diversity. Um, believe it or not, yep, there's pushback. You know that if you follow what's going on in culture and particularly in the church and how to build a truly multi-ethnic organization. So if you're a church leader, uh, that's what Derwin does. Okay, he'll show you that. But also if you're a business, we talk about that. How do you build a multi-ethnic organization? And in the What I'm Thinking About segment at the end, I want to talk to you a little bit more about why this subject is so important, I think, to me and to this generation. This episode is brought to you by World Vision. You can sign up for their free web series, Right Side Up Soul Care with Danielle Strickland at worldvision.org slash carry. And by MediShare, the best alternative to traditional health insurance, the typical family saves an average of 50% or more on monthly healthcare costs when they switch. Find out how much you can save today by going to metashare.com slash carry. Well, I'm so excited to be able to do this podcast week after week with you. I want to thank you for making it, well, actually the best year in the history of this podcast. We are working on a killer lineup of guests for the fall as well. So uh, when you share this, when you let us know that this is helping you, it means the world to us. And uh, I just want to thank you for that. I never take it for granted. It's a privilege to do this. It's a privilege to partner with you. And it's a privilege to bring you people like Derwin Gray. Derwin is a former NFL player. We talk about diversity in the NFL. He is the founding and lead pastor of Transformation Church. And Transformation Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, mission-shaped community in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. He's been married for 28 years. He's the author of Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. And um, he's also the host of the Marinate on That podcast. So Derwin, great to have you back. Um, hey, the deepest truth about this summer is you are probably trying to recalibrate to get ready for the fall. We're heading into a really big fall where things appear to be all, by all accounts, reopen again. And we all know we're moving into a new era. I asked leaders recently on Instagram, I'm like, hey, how many of you think we're moving into a new era? 91% said, yep, this is, this is new territory. Okay, so how are you doing? World Vision wants to help you listen to the voice of leaders from around the world who have suffered, who've been, uh, you know, just through through far more than we have, and they will inspire you as you get healthy this summer. So join Danielle and World Vision for a new series called Right Side Up Soul Care, because you got to care for your soul, right? I know for me, as goes my soul, so goes my life. So in this free web series, Danielle and church leaders around the globe help you figure out how to lead and sustain yourself through difficult circumstances. You can sign up today at worldvision.org slash carry. That's worldvision.org slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. And as I said, leaders are tired. It's been crazy navigating the world and they need companies they can trust. And maybe you need a little break here and there. Did you know that 66% of Americans across all income levels say that health insurance is a major financial stressor? Well, MediShare is the best alternative to traditional health insurance that allows Christians to share burdens in the form of medical bills. They are trusted by over 415,000 members nationwide. They're an authentic Christian community. They actually pray for each other. And the typical family saves on average 50% or more on monthly healthcare costs when they switch. That equates to about an average of $500 a month, which is a lot of money. MediShare members have access to free telehealth and free telecounseling. Yeah, I know as a pastor, I'd say, hey, you should go for counseling. People say, I can't afford it. With MediShare, it's included and it's unlimited. You can join anytime and have access to 900,000 providers. If you want to learn more, it takes just two minutes. So head on over to metashare.com slash carry. That's M-E-D-I-S-H-A-R-E dot com forward slash C-A-R-E-Y. So uh, guys, uh, let's dive in to the conversation today with Derwin Gray. Derwin, it's so good to chat again. And I want to start with a conversation you and I had a few months ago. We were on another show that I do, Church Pulse Weekly. And when we were getting ready for it, uh, we were talking about fishing. And so if you remember, I said to you, apparently the Great Lakes 400 years ago when the explorers were first here were just teeming with fish and you could almost like walk across 
the backs of fish. The Great Lakes were so full of them. And I said, wouldn't it have been great to live 400 years ago? And you said? I said, uh, no, I'm black. 400 years ago in North America uh, was not um, an epic time to be a black man in North America or an indigenous person as well. And so, yeah. And, and I think one of the, the beauties of that transaction is I think that's the genius of God's love is he allows us to interact and see life from other people's perspectives. And every human being is made in the image of God. And because our world is broken, we have things like what you call the explorers, the indigenous people called something else. And the African slaves who came, enslaved people came to America, called them something else. But as brothers in Christ, who both share the same faith in Christ, my story was able to inform you to see from my perspective. And um, that's what it really takes to love each other, to be humble enough to learn from the other, but also to be unoffendable by legitimate questions. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that didn't offend me. Like it, it didn't. I, it was, I feel like the last year and a half for me has been a whole lot of aha moments like that. Derwin, because we were just joking around. I know how much you like to fish, all that stuff. So it was it was a really innocent comment. And yet the way you handled it really made me go, oh, of course. Like it just, it was like a new, it was a moment for me where I'm like, yep, yep, he's right. He's right. What do people who look like me, white people, what do we not understand that we need to understand? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, so so let me let me give uh an illustration and then engage in that question, right? So how do you tell a fish that it lives in water? Because all the fish knows is that water is normative. You know, and so when you catch a fish and you bring it out of water, it flops around because this is like an alien environment. Like, wait a minute. You mean outside of this is not water? And so regardless of what time in history you've been born in, there are majority cultures, there are minority cultures. And so in majority cultures, say in North America with our white brothers and sisters, uh, it's like fish living in water and you think everybody else is a fish. But the reality is, is God's creation is multifaceted. It's this incredible mosaic of difference. And it's our differences that make us different for the better if we are willing to learn. Uh, there's this old Jewish philosopher who met Jesus. His name is Paul. And one of the things that he said was, was this, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Um, but consider others better than yourselves. That is a profound statement. And so when you're the dominant culture, the world is revolving around you. And so people who aren't like you don't experience the same things that you experience. And so it takes a great deal of humility to say, how do you experience life. And so what I would say to my white brothers and sisters, regardless if you're a person of faith or not, is taking time to learn strategically from the others. So just recently, I'm learning that the overwhelming, that, that cowboys in America, like every American kid that grew up in my era, like you want to be a cowboy, like John Wayne. Right. We had no idea that like upwards to 30% of cowboys were black because there were never any cowboys in cowboy movies with John Wayne. And yeah, so that's a that's made, a new thing for me too. Yeah. I didn't so know that. the actual person who represents the Lone Ranger was actually a black cowboy from Oklahoma. Did not yeah, he yeah, he was the one who's uh, life was the template for the Lone Ranger, right? And, and, and so these are these are small, simple things. But then when you make it more complex, 
such as driving while black, such as being followed in a um, in a store or or uh, the housing value. Right. Uh, research shows that if a house is owned by a black person in the same neighborhood as white people, the appraisal is much lower. But if you just simply switch the person, the appraisal goes up like that's historical. Right. And you look at um, other issues. So so what I would say is, is we need a lot more patience with each uh, uh, other. So as a as a black man who, by the way, who, by the way, I did a DNA test about six years ago. Carrie, I am nearly 25% European. Really? Yeah. My uh my mom doesn't know her biological dad, but my mom is about as fair as you are. I have an aunt that is very fair with hazel eyes and blonde hair. And so when I did my DNA, uh, I like to say that I'm on a black Scotsman. I got a little bit of Scotsman in me. Got a bit of Scots in you, Turin. Okay, uh, yeah, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, as people of color, we need to be less offendable towards people of goodwill. But then our white brothers and sisters of the dominant culture must also be humble enough to learn. But then for people of faith, we have this commonality in Jesus. And uh, one of the beautiful theological truths is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, all of our sin died in his body, all the icky, ugly things. But in the resurrection, this beautiful mystery takes place where we as human beings who follow Jesus come to live in him. So we're literally the body of Jesus. And so how we treat each other is how we're treating Jesus. And a lot of times we allow um, the culture to dictate how we should treat each other instead of Christ. Yeah. One of the things, because I've been on this journey now, like a lot of people have over the last year and a bit, and you know, it's not that I was insensitive to it before, but I think there's a heightened sensitivity to these things for me and to racial justice and racial reconciliation and all those things, Derwin. And uh, I've, I've had you on my other podcast. I've got you back on this podcast now. But um, sometimes when I'll comment publicly on it, like whether that's on social media or whatever, and I'm talking about racial justice, I, I will get people, I'm guessing they're white, who will say, oh, you're part of the woke mob now. They got you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, there have been a lot of moments for me where I'm like, oh, yeah, like, of course, Durden want, wouldn't want to go back. Or, oh, that's how systemic prejudice works. I get it now. I'm I, like, I'm getting it more than I did in, in the past. What would you say? to Caucasian people who are defensive, offended, and who worry that this is part of some kind of agenda. Like you hear that quite yeah, a bit. You know, I'm sure so, you get it way more than I do. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so, but you know, I've been getting that response for a long time. Um, but so the first thing that I would do, and, and so being a pastor of a church that is probably 55 to 60% white um, these are normative conversations for us. And here's what's interesting. Right. Um, Christians who are white, who come from other churches, struggle with the idea of multi-ethnic church, struggle with the idea of racial justice, but unbelieving white people get it immediately. There's something yeah. about um, American Christianity that almost bakes into it this prejudice aspect and when you yeah. look throughout the history of the church, particularly in America, 90% of all black denominations exist because of racism in the white church. So when you look at hmm. Jim Crow, when you look at segregation, when you look at civil rights, the white church was not a proponent of promoting justice. I mean, for goodness sakes, there was a a Christian denomination that started in 1845 because they wanted to keep people enslaved, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the first thing that I do is I sit down and I want to hear their heart. And this is what I've found, Carrie, is for many white conservative evangelical Christians, there's this marriage of the American flag mm -hmm. and Jesus. 
So if you talk about America in any disparaging way, even if it's historical and factual, it's an affront, they think, to Jesus and also a thing, uh, also an affront to their Protestant work ethic. So this is what I do, is I say to them this, I say, understand this, my great, 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 great grandfather, Moses Davis, fought with the Union against the Confederacy. He fought for the American ideal of liberty and justice for all. The Confederacy, which existed for four years, did not want to be a part of America, and they wanted to keep human beings made in the image of God enslaved. I am a running in my veins is a patriot's spirit. My flesh and blood fought for what this flag stands for. So this isn't just your country. This is all of our country. That's number one. Number two, our identity as followers of Jesus, regardless of your ethnicity, is not in America. America didn't die for you on a cross. Jesus Christ died for you on a cross. Our allegiance is to Jesus first and foremost. Therefore, we can look objectively and say, wow, America has been a beacon of hope and greatness. But like every nation, there are some ugly things. Uh, where I live, Carrie, in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, Catawba indigenous people used to roam this land. That's not the case anymore. Mm. Um, we need to look at that. We need to look at why can I chase trace my genealogy to Charleston, South Carolina, because there is a that's where a lot of enslaved people came. Oh. That like any family, we've got good things and bad things. And we have to be able to talk about both of them. You cannot have true healing without true recognition. Thirdly, when people of color bring up the past, it's number one, to show how we got to where we are now. And number two, it's to help our brothers and sisters look back and let's mourn collectively together. Because when you mourn and when you cry with someone, that bonds your hearts to move forward together. And then lastly, lastly, if you don't remember the past, you're doomed to repeat it. And so as we look at the United States of America, like we had an insurrection where I saw white police officers getting beat by white men with the American flag on a pole but I didn't hear anything about Blue Lives Matter then. And so I'm like, so does Blue Lives Matter only when it's a Black Lives Matter protest? Because I've seen policemen getting beat with American flagpoles and I've seen a Confederate flag in the U.S. Capitol. Um, that's, that, is, that is treason. The Confederacy didn't want to be a part of America. And so what I see happening is people are more committed to their late night political TV show host than they are actually to scripture. Because the party of the lamb, the kingdom of God, it speaks prophetically both to the progressives and the conservative slash party of Trump. And so it's important to be able to have these conversations, but the defensiveness that you're talking about is actually rooted in idolatry that it's a strand of white nationalism. And it's very important. So I'm a theologian, um, I'm a biblical scholar, and the United States of America or Canada is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. And it's important for people to understand that the church of Jesus Christ uh, outlasted the Roman Empire, uh, the Crusades, uh, the Middle Ages, and he's going to outlast everything else. And so our allegiance is to Jesus. We are colonies of the new heavens and new earth in the present to be bringers of justice and mercy. And justice is simply this. I want my neighbor to be treated the way I am, and I want the wrongs to be made right. When you have those conversations, 
with people who are resistant? How do they go or defensive? You know, how do they go? Um, do you ever see people come around or is it kind of oh, yeah. like, well, thanks so much. I'm gone. Uh, uh, overwhelmingly for people who come to our church, they end up staying because what they find out is that the gospel is a bigger and more beautiful story. They've just been told that the gospel is about forgiving sins, but the gospel is not only forgiving sins, it's creating a family of brothers and sisters with different colored skins. And this family loves to, this family learns to love each other. And as we love each other, we not only make each other better, but we give a better glimpse to the world of what Jesus looks like. The image of God is not located in just one ethnic group. Like right. God loves diversity. Like when you look at the universe, when you look just at ocean, like for me, fish, when I look at the difference between a big old ugly catfish and a beautiful sunfish, like you see diversity everywhere. And within humanity, there's only one race, the human race. But God in his genius has created this human race to have different ethnicities and, and, and different cultures and different ways of being. And that's how we grow and learn. For example, Carrie, I have learned from the Canadians. Hmm. You know what I've learned? What have we taught you? You have taught me I am not built for cold weather. <laughs> well, that's a gift to humanity, isn't it? <laughs> hey, listen, in, in the early 2000s, I was speaking somewhere in Canada, Manitoba or something. It was above oh, it gets Minnesota, cold there. Minnesota. Yeah. And it was in January. And I'm when so I sorry. would go outside, I ran because my nose hairs would freeze. Correct. And I was like, Lord, these Canadian people have taught me I am not built for this. I spoke in Norway uh, about a decade ago, and I thought it was cold in Canada. So I'm Toronto-based, considerably south of Manitoba. And uh, I'm like, oh, my goodness. It was like another level of cold. It was like that very thing. I thought my skin cells were freezing as I walked from the dining hall to where I was speaking that night. Uh, well, I'm glad, I'm glad we taught you something. Um, I'm interested because you said church people seem to have this resistance. And I agree. We've talked yeah. about this with Rick Warren, Tim Keller, you know, that American nationalism is a real issue inside the mm -hmm. church. And it's a, it's a challenge that the church is going to have to deal with. But you said unchurched people seem to get it inherently. Yep. Do you find that it's somewhat generational as well? Because I've noticed yes. like sometimes we're having these conversations and I'm like, man, if a 23-year-old unchurched person heard this, they'd be like, what is the conversation even about? Of course, it's about reconciliation. Of course, it's about justice. Of course, it's about multi-ethnic. Like, yes. what are you yes. finding generationally? Um, I, 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 am, I am finding that generationally, and I think it's quite beautiful, right? And, and so this is where my heartbeat is. Generation Z and, and younger millennials really want to transform the world. Hmm. They want to be a part of justice. They want to be a part of making the world different. And so we see tons of Gen Z and millennials because we tell them this, you want to be a part of changing the world? Let me tell you about the one that when he rose from the dead, everything became different. And you can actually join him in healing the world. That salvation is not just salvation of your soul, but it's the salvation of the whole of humanity. And your mm. work is a way to join God in creating something beautiful to make someone else's life better so that they can see Jesus in you. This idea of salt and light. Also, coming out of the 60s and then moving into the 70s, there's this thing called post-modernity. And post-modernity was supposed to break down the meta-narrative that there's one objective truth, right? Well, what's happened is truth has become individual. I have my own truth. If I mm -hmm. want to say two plus two is 12, then it is because it's true. And I think they're finding disorientation in that, that they want a bigger story to live by, but that bigger story can't just be, hey, we don't like people and uh, Jesus just died for our sins. They want to walk with the Jewish rabbi to touch the leper, 
to turn over the tables where there's corruption. And so I do think it's generational. Now, for boomers, they came out of communism as a threat. Uh, They remember World War II. They remember the chaos of the late 60s. And so there's this ethos of American exceptionalism. Now, listen, I love my country. I think it's awesome. I've traveled all over the world. Uh, we were in Denmark. We were at a, caps, uh, a, a, a taxi guy, and he was talking smack about America. And I'm like, no, I can talk smack about America, but you can't because you've never been. <laughs> um, but here's my point, though. Why do we as Americans have to be the best? Like, mm. like, shouldn't the point of life be how does my life make other lives better? Mm. And as a Christian, Jesus said these words, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Right. And so my ethos is, man, hey, take the creative genius that we learn here and let's multiply it to make the world a better place. Now, as a Christian, I also know that the world is not going to be as beautiful as it can be until the beauty of Jesus finally comes. But it's almost like we can become his paintbrushes and the world is a canvas and we're painting colors of love, painting colors of grace and mercy. Tell me about uh, your childhood, which you outline in the book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. Mm. It was, I mean, I've known you for years, but there were things I didn't know about you that you shared in the book. And it was very um, eye-opening. Yeah. So uh, mom was 16. Dad was 18 um, when I was born around that age. And um, they both had various issues. Um, I grew up poor, grew up on welfare, grew up in the hood. Like my whole life was like, you know, like three or four blocks. That's all that I knew. And when everybody else is that way, it just is like gunshots and violence. Like you learn to survive at about age 13. Um, I learned that if I wanted to be taken care of, it had to be me. Um, you know, I've done a lot of work with abandonment issues. Um, Jesus has been so kind through people, through reading, that by 13, I wasn't going to let anybody close to me because you could hurt me. You could let me down. So mm-hmm. from about 13, I felt like I was an adult. And football became my way out of the environment that I was in. I went to an incredible high school where the football coaches taught discipline, self-reliance, teamwork, sacrifice. And I bought into that philosophy. And I was the first male in my family to graduate high school. I went to college. I became a football American, one of the best ever play at Brigham Young. So here I am, a uh, a black kid from the hood, and I go to Brigham Young, which is incredibly diverse. There's multiple shades of white Mormonness, and so that was that was an incredible culture shock. But that taught me how to get along with people because Mormons were different than any other white people I've ever experienced. They have their own culture, and so from my childhood, I built these walls around me. And looking on the outside, people would go, that's the American success story. In America, you can go from parents not graduating to getting a degree, you're making money, you're famous. But for all the success I had on the outside, on the inside, I was still grieving. Hmm. Why didn't my dad love me enough to stay? I was grieving. Why did I have to be sexually abused? I was grieving, even to this day, why am I always going into a restaurant? I know the exits. I'm looking for everybody. Like, I'm prepared for danger to happen because that's the way you grow up. Um, I was grieving when I married my wife. I didn't know how to truly love her because I didn't truly know how to love myself. My whole life was built upon performance as a football player. How fast are you? How good are you? How high can you jump? My whole life was just built upon performance until I met him. Mm -hmm. And when I met Jesus, it was like he was the first one who said, son, you can rest now because 
your performance isn't good enough. As a matter of fact, no one's performance is good enough. That's why I came to perform for you. And in my performance on the cross, you can have life. Do you still, when you go into restaurants, scope out the exits? Or is that something you've gotten over? Uh, Well, unfortunately, Carrie, I live in America. I don't know what it's like up in Canada, but in America, Uh people be shooting up places all the times. And so it is a, uh, now I think I've redeemed that and that it's not a source of anxiety. Now it's just a source of like, man, in America, we love guns. For some reason, Americans love guns. You got to be prepared, right? You do, sadly. I mean, it is, it is tragic that that coping survival skill is something that I still keep. Hmm. Hmm. What other, what other residual impact of your childhood are you still working through? Or, you know, feel free to expand that to growing up black in America. What, what is still there? That's like uniquely yours that you're like, yep, I'm still, still paying attention. So I would say one of the things that I have a heart for is I have a heart for the marginalized. I have a heart for the uh, discounted. I have a heart for um, those who are neglected because I felt like that was me. Um, I have a heart for women because I've seen women who were close to me be be physically uh, uh, beaten. And so I have a heart for women. Um, I have a heart for life in the womb. My mother was told in 10th grade, uh, this is 1970, she was told, go to California and abort me. And my wife said, hell no, we don't do that. Hmm. And or, or my mom, my mom said, uh, no, we don't do that. And so to this very day, I'm thankful for her courage to bring me into the world. And so my mom and I have really grown up together because she's only 17 years older than me. Yeah. Um, you, you, you know, so, so the, I have a heart also for, uh, for men to be husbands and dads. And I'm not a big, even though I played in the NFL, I'm not a big fan of what the American church projects a man to be like years ago to be a man was like, you get on a horse and you ride in the woods. And I'm like, listen, brother, I am black. I ain't getting on a horse. I ain't riding in no woods. I ain't climbing no mountain. I'm not doing any of that stuff. Like a man, Jesus is the ultimate portrait of a man. Bring the children to me. He touched the lepers. He got in the faces of the religious leaders, right? Um, He was humble. He was strong. He was brave. It's this multifaceted picture. It's not a dude with a Bass Pro Shop hat on with a bow shooting at something. That could be a part of it, but that's not the only thing. So growing up without a dad, I wanted to be a very present dad and a very loving dad. But one of the things that I learned, the most important dad that I could be is a repenting dad. And here's what I mean by that. No parent is going to be perfect. And the best thing a parent can do is model the need for grace and asking their children for grace and pointing them to the one who is grace. One vivid experience, I I remember being eight years old, and this plays into my passion to see racial reckon. I was about eight years old and I went into a restaurant with my mom. We sat down and this drunk white man stood up and said, I remember when you blankety blank N words couldn't eat with us good white folks. And I remember um, a black gentleman standing up to basically go take care of him. And his wife said, baby, he's not worth it. And somehow God left that imprint in my mind. And this is who I feel sorry for, Carrie. I feel more sorry for the person who was spewing those words than the people those words were coming upon. Because to dehumanize another person means the depth of your dehumanity is at toxic levels. 
And so that also plays out. I, I want to see people set free from the bondage of hate. Hmm. I'll echo that, Derwin. Let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit, talk about the NFL. So you played for a number of years in the NFL. And a lot of leaders here, whether that's church leaders, business leaders, are committed to creating a multi-ethnic environment. I think that's one yeah. thing in the last year and a half that's really come into clear focus for so many organizations, so many leaders. What did you learn about creating a multi-ethnic environment or yeah. culture, yeah. good, bad, and oh. ugly, in the NFL? Yeah. yeah, So, so what I learned in the NFL is, is, is this. Only one thing matters win. That's all. It's win. And so what the general manager, the ownership and the coaches do is they want to assemble a team that helps you win. Now, by the time you get to the NFL, you are conditioned to do a couple of things. Number one, find your role. Number two, earn your job. And number three, help your team win. And so what happens is is when you come together as a team, you've got a playbook, there's a culture, and at the end of the day, you don't ask a guy, so I noticed you're white, so we can't play together. Like what Like what comes first is winning, and then you work on those secondary issues and things. Now, have there been, uh, I remember in college at BYU, there was a linebacker and a Another planner team got into an argument, white and black guy, and the white guy called the black dude the N-word, but the black dude threatened the white guy's family, right? So both of them were wrong. And so Mm. we've seen in the NFL that you have a diversity of opinions. But here's the thing. When the whistle is blown and you start playing, your teammates are your teammates, And so there are guys that I would have never been friends with outside of the NFL who I would have never connected with. Um, There was a guy named Kurt Loudermilk, and he was an old, crusty center. And we would have never connected outside of a locker room. But because we were friends, there was like this incredible bond. But also, even within the black players, there's incredible diversity. Incredible diversity. Um, You you know, so what I would say is this. When you understand the vision and when you understand your role and when you sacrifice, you can win. So for me as a pastor, to build a multi-ethnic church is we have the ultimate vision. Love God. Love your neighbor as you love, love yourself. We have the ultimate role. God gives us all spiritual gifts, and then we sacrifice for each other. But in the midst of that, there's this thing called humility. Humility says, I am willing to relearn some things in order to love. Now, that's helpful. Uh, because we have a lot of leaders trying to build a healthier, more multi-ethnic organization, uh, what are some what are some things that a true multi ethnic organization is not? In other words, people say, "Oh, we're multi ethnic," and you're like, "No, you're not." What would what would be some some false signs that you think you're multi ethnic but you're not? Yeah. So the aspect of truly being multi ethnic starts with who makes the decisions. So in my mm. world as a pastor and as an equipper of other pastors and influencer of churches, um, who makes the decisions at the church? Because a lot of times uh, what I've found and what I research in my latest book is uh, a lot of the mega churches in America are considered quote unquote multi-ethnic because not one ethnic group makes up more than 80% but the leadership of the church will be overwhelmingly white. And then the issues of the other people are not communicated. So a true multi-ethnic church has a diversity of perspectives ethnically and life experience-wise. So when we planted Transformation Church, my first hire 11 years ago was a 54-year-old white guy. Number one, he was qualified, but number two, He had cultural and life experiences I didn't have. 
Number three, it spoke volumes that we were serious about this. Hmm. So therefore, it has to be reflected in the leadership. And here's why, Carrie, is I'm not smart enough to know everything. And so we need other perspectives and life vantage points to look at the same issue. And we see this throughout the scriptures of diversity of leadership. So that's number one. Number two is how do people who are marginalized the most feel? Do they think that you have their back? Mm. Do they think that you support them? And so when you have a diversity of leadership, you consider other people that your culture represents. So those are the two biggest things is representation by identification and then speaking into the issues of people who are hurting. So, for example, as a former NFL player, it hurt me deeply that a lot of fans said, hey, listen, when we come to a game, we just want to see the game. We don't want to we don't want to hear nothing about racial injustice or any of these things. And I'm like, so let me get this right. You just want me to get you fantasy football points, but you don't care about my life outside of the field. Mm. I love you too much to not allow you to grow in your humanity. And Mm. sports has always played a vital role in changing culture and society, just like music has as well. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, people would make the argument that has no place in sports. What's your take on that? <laughs> like whether that's kneeling for the national anthem, that kind of thing. What's what's your take on that? Jeremy? Well, the first thing is I think we need to understand some things. When I played in the NFL in the 90s, very rarely were we as players out on the field for the national anthem. Hmm. I only remember a few times actually being out on the field for the national anthem. Number two, the U.S. military paid the NFL a lot of money to get players to be out on the field for the national anthem so that they could recruit for all these wars that we're continuing to fight in the Middle East. Um, So am I all for my country? Yeah, but personally... um, I'm like, man, stay in the locker room. Like when people go to work, do they play the national anthem like at their jobs? So there's a bigger game that's being played that we have to look through that I love my country. I love being an American, but I love being a part of the kingdom of God more. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's a different perspective for sure. What are some other keys to creating a truly multi-ethnic, diverse organization? Okay, so this one right here is the simplest, but it's the hardest. Who is sitting around your dinner table that is ethnically and culturally different than you? But not only are they sitting around your dinner table, do your kids look up to them? Do you receive knowledge from them? Because a lot of times, Majority culture people have relationships with other ethnicities and it's a paternalistic relationship like, oh, I'm helping you. What person of color is pouring into your life? Who is encouraging you? Um, Like for the leaders that are listening, who are the leaders of color that you're getting information from? So for me in my world as a pastor, after about four years, I stopped going to pastor conferences because I was receiving the same information from the same kinds of people repackaged. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, if you do the same thing, you're going to get the same results. And the results of what I see in America for the, for Christians is not that awesome. So I need to change that around. You know, and and so who's around your dinner table? Like, like who do you break bread with? Who are you close to? Who's teaching you something that you didn't previously know? Yeah, how do you begin that? Because I've 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 heard that 
at different times and the thought has challenged me and it's something my wife and I are working at on where we're in a particularly Caucasian area. It's not that there aren't diversity, but I mean, a lot of people who look like me uh, live around here. So we, we joined um, or started a Be the Bridge, Bridge group where we are very intentional. I don't know that you know that program or not, but mm-hmm. you know we're in with a diverse group. So we're hanging out with them, that kind of stuff. What would you yep. say for leaders who are like, yeah, my dinner table, like come to my backyard on a summer night, it's not very diverse. Where do you yeah. start? So I would I would say if you're not a person of, of faith, just just like meditate and begin to think about who are different people other than me that I would like to connect with at the office or at the gym. If you are a person of faith, then begin to pray about, you know, God, bring people that are different into my life. Like it has to be intentional. So there's one thing that leaders do that make them lead well. They are intentional. And so this has to be a step of intentionality. So one of the intentional steps that I take, Carrie, is I go to coffee shops and I pray. I say, Lord, there are hurting people all around. Will you bring hurting people to me? People that are different. Um, people that are older, people that are younger, bring them to me to build relationships with. And it is amazing over the years, the conversations and the relationships that I have that have developed, but you have to be intentional about carving that time out. Mm. Yeah. And being intentional about even asking the question rather than thinking it's going to happen by osmosis. On the days I've gotten it right, it's amazing. I, from my faith perspective, what God sends along the way. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. here you go. Right? Yeah, le- um, leaders are intentional. If you're not intentional, you're being intentional about not making these relationships. So the church is not very integrated. It's not very diverse at this point. I think, you know, the old cliche that that uh, America is still segregated at 11 a.m. On, on Sunday morning, right? The most segregated hour um, you've hinted at it already. There are some historic reasons for that. Any other reasons for the church and then other industries that may be or um, fields, sectors that are very undiversified and why? Yeah, yeah. So so let me let me throw this caveat first. And I, I think this is really important. As a pastor, the goal is not diversity. The goal is to love each other well and beautifully. Mm. Jesus said these words, love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love is more than sentimentalism. Love is more than feelings. Love is a commitment to the betterment of the other, which requires sacrifice on our part. So that's number one. Number two is... um. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear of the other. Um, number three, let's just call it what, what it is. Prejudice is real. People of color can be prejudiced also. That's individual. Racism is systemic or structural. And most conservative people struggle with the idea of systemic racism. So what I mean by systemic racism is, for example, the city of Charlotte was developed a certain way. And years ago, Black people could only live in a certain part of the city. That's called redlining. Mm -hmm. And so you couldn't get loans outside of that red line, okay? So that is an example of systemic. And so racism and prejudice is real. Um, Also, I do think that a big distraction has come about too. This idea that if you're against racism and sexism and classism, somehow that that's woke. Well, if Mm. that's being woke, then Jesus was wide awake then. Because last I checked, um, he broke down ethnic barriers with Samaritans and a Samaritan woman 
Um, he was with Gentiles. Um, he was with the poor. He was with the lame. He was with the disenfranchised and he was with the wealthy. Jesus is an everybody type of a person. And so I, in my work over the last seven months, I've been incredibly frustrated by how now I have to dismantle the arguments of being woke before I can actually get to the real sin. And so there's a lot of people within the church who are saying, oh, well, you know what? That's woke. So I'm not even going to be a part of it. Like I actually loathe that word woke because of the distraction that it's become. And so what I like to say is this, Jesus made it clear, love your neighbor as you love yourself. How is that bearing weight in your life? And one of the ways that you know that you're growing in love for the other is things that affect the other begin to affect you. Hmm. Hmm. That's a great line. That's a great line. Got to ask you a couple more questions. Why do you think there's so much pushback to the idea of systemic racism? So, um, you know, I am a, I'm a person of faith. I think, number one, that there are dark powers of evil that love division. Number two, I think it pushes against the white Protestant work ethic motif. Hmm. You know, in America, you're taught you can do anything you want to do. You can be anything you want to be if you just work hard enough. So here's a question. Tell that to a Native American in 1802, they can be anything they want to be. Tell that to a woman who couldn't vote until 1920. Tell that to a black person in Alabama who could not even exercise their freedom to vote as an American citizen because of the voting tax. Tell that to the Mm -hmm. churches in Birmingham, Alabama that were bombed so much that Alabama, Birmingham was called bombing ham. And so it smacks against this work ethic. And one of the things that I find is if you say systemic injustice, a lot of white Christians will go, well, that's a personal attack against me. So so let me give you an example, uh, Carrie. Mm. So when I was a kid in elementary school, there were a lot of right-handed desks. So when I sat down, I could write on my desk because I was right-handed. Well, I had friends who were left-handed, but they had to write on a right-handed desk. Both of Mm -hmm. us worked equally as hard, but it was easier for me because I had right privilege. Mm. Left-handed people had to work harder because the desk was made for them. Well, in the United States of America, when you look historically, it was created with a Eurocentric dominant world view. It doesn't mean that white people haven't worked hard. It just meant that their ethnicity and culture was not a hindrance to their hard work. So we've covered an awful lot. If somebody wants to take a couple of steps, one or two steps toward um, a more racially just organization, church, business, whatever, team, what are some first steps you would recommend, Derwin? The first thing that I would do is I would sit down, get in a quiet place. And if you're a believer, I would say, Spirit of God, help me to see my prejudice and blind spots. If you're not, sit down, meditate and say, okay, where are my prejudices and where are my blind spots? Um, Number two, I would begin to say, okay, give me friends that I can learn from. And I want to connect deeply with them. Uh, number three, um, I would I would read my book. And um, that is a shameless plug because I think it's the best book on the topic. Um, yeah, and I would say the principles are broad enough, even though it's building in a multi-ethnic church, the principles I would say are broad enough that you could implement in pretty much any organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and Carrie, you know, this as well, when you look at business innovation, right? Yeah. Steve Jobs was Syrian. Mm. 
When you look at the founders of Google, they also were immigrants. So when you look at the history of America, we all came from somewhere else, and even in Canada, except for the indigenous people that were there. And so it comes down to this. Have a table so big that everybody can sit at it and eat well and conversate and learn from each other. It's a posture of humility and generosity. Derwin, that's fantastic. Dr. Derwin Gray, the book is called Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. So where can people find you online these days, Derwin? Yeah. Go to derwinlgray.com. That's D-E-W-I-N-G-R-L, derwinlgray.com. That's gray with an A. Okay, great. And um, yeah, and you're also pretty active on social as well. Derwin, once again, it's been a joy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, good sir. Well, that was an important conversation. And uh, Derwin, thank you so much for leading the charge with that. I got a few thoughts I just want to share, uh, particularly for those who are resisting even having this conversation. And as much as that comes out of my mouth, I have a hard time believing that that is the case, but it is still happening. I hear about it on a regular basis. So I just have a few thoughts on that. But first, I want to tee up the next episode. Really privileged to have Amy Edmondson. If you've ever heard of the term psychological safety, yeah, that's her work. She's a Harvard Business School professor, renowned business expert. Uh, She has spoken across the world, and we talk about psychological safety at work and what to do if you don't have one. Here is an excerpt. Right, right. And then they're terrified, and they don't ask for help, and, you know, they don't report when, you know, errors or things, and then things go spiraling out of control, and you don't even know it's happening. So a lot of valuable time is lost, right? So this is one of the things I think... um, you know, we were talking earlier about leaders who don't know that they might have a psychological safety problem. Everything seems to be fine. Right. And here's the, the biggest challenge is that you don't know about the value that you left behind. That's next time on the podcast. Also, Chris Hodges is going to talk about a battle with depression and anxiety that he had, how he got through it. Louis Giglio, uh, Alan George, formerly of Life Church, Pete Scazzaro, David Allen from Getting Things Done. Uh, well, and so many more. I'm very excited for the lineup that we have. And we're starting a new feature here in August. Uh, this segment is called Ask Me Anything About Productivity. So we're getting rid of what I'm thinking about for a while. I'm going to bench it. And I want to coach you. So if you have productivity questions, we're going to spend all of September on personal productivity and team productivity. Head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast. Click on the start recording button underneath Ask Me Anything About Productivity and record me a message. Leave me a voicemail, okay? I will coach you. So bring me your problems. What are you struggling with? Overwhelm, exhaustion, something at work, uh, something in your personal life. You know, you got a plan, but it's not working. What is it around productivity? Uh, You can start that now. So leave me some voicemails. My team and I will go through them. We will pick one a week, maybe more than that to go through. And at the end of this podcast, go to kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast and ask me anything about productivity. That starts in August and I'm very excited for it. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about what Derwin and I talked about. In this segment, this episode is brought to you by World Vision. Sign up for their free web series, Right Side Up Soul Care with Danielle Strickland at worldvision.org slash carry. And check out MediShare if you want to start saving 50% or more on monthly healthcare costs. You can go to metashare.com slash Carrie. Well, um, you know, why does this conversation about racial, well, not even the conversation about racial justice, why does racial justice matter so much? Well, I think you can argue on just a biblical level, a core level, a human level, a humane level, of course it matters. And that is something that I've been pursuing in my own life. Uh, Earlier this year, my wife and I started a Be the Bridge group. Thank you, Latasha Morrison. And so we've been gathering now for months with people of different backgrounds to discuss racial justice, and I've learned an awful lot about it. But I still hear people who are like pushing back and, and, uh, you know, not in that Be the Bridge group. It's been fantastic. But just online, you know, if I deal with it, people will be like, oh, you're woke or, you know, whatever. And I just, I don't get it. And so I want to give you two reasons that are not by any stretch the most compelling reasons, but I think important reasons in leadership that you actually pay attention to this, okay? Generational differences are becoming clearer than ever. And if you double click on the polling data, you will discover that things like equality and justice are so important to Gen Z and to younger millennials. 
And so it's easy as an older Gen X or a boomer leader to go, oh, well, you know, I got something that's working over here. Listen, the clock is ticking, okay? If you're a leader and you're ignoring this stuff or you're not letting your heart get open to what justice is really all about and uh, I think where the kingdom of God is leading, uh, you're going to lose the next generation. In fact, I would argue you've already lost them. And uh, I would just drill down. You can go back as far as 2007, I think it was, and read David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons' book on Christian. Just read it again, okay? And then you can read Faith for Exiles for an updated perspective. When you look at the generational differences around prejudice, around love, around hope, around justice, around kindness, around making things right, it's stark. And uh, if you're in an old schema where... Uh, yeah, you're just not listening to diverse voices or treating people with equality or justice. Uh, you've already lost the next generation. And on a similar bent, I think the political and ideological churches, and you know, as, as evangelicalism is being unmasked, its underside is being unmasked. We did a little bit of that with Ed Stetzer a few episodes ago. Uh, the political and ideological churches of the future are going to lose influence with the unchurched. If last year surfaced anything, it's how political and ideological some kinds of churches have become. Just, you know, hey, we vote this particular way, and if you don't, and this is what we think on this issue, and this, and, and, and those, you know, are, are things that, um, yeah, they're just partisan more than even principled. And, and they mask as principled, but they're really partisan. When you take a stand like that, politically or ideologically, you've already alienated 50% of the people you're trying to reach. Unchurched people aren't looking for an echo of the culture, all right? They're not looking for more Fox News or CNN. They're looking for an alternative to it. And I believe the future church will consist of Christians who look, live, and sound much more like Jesus than the political candidate of their choice. So anyway, just a few more thoughts on what I think is really at stake in this discussion. And uh, yeah, I, I just want to see, first of all, the kingdom advance. Secondly, so grateful for friends like Derwin. And third, so grateful for the dialogue we're having. I think good is coming out of it. As painful as it's been, we need to stand together as humanity. And uh, yeah, those are just a few thoughts. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.